I stood in the pulpit of Highland for 21 years and preached to the beautiful cloud of witnesses, the stained glass windows, in the back left, including Richard Furman and James P. Boyce, who were both slaveholders. I, I never recognized, acknowledged, or knew, you know, although the information was right there, that they were slaveholders. I never saw it. Now I see it. And now I wonder what churches like Highland will do with that. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Joe Phelps, a longtime Baptist pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. He retired last year after 22 years at Highland Baptist Church there, but is still an active minister, preaching and speaking on important issues in his community and beyond. Joe was one of the key speakers at the Angela Project gathering in Birmingham, Alabama last month, as he talked about his own personal journey in coming to see his white privilege and how it had benefited his family and his own life. So I was glad to have an opportunity to sit down with Joe while we were there in Birmingham together to talk more about the Angela Project, his own story, as well as the effort that he's been involved in with Empower West in calling for Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where Joe Phelps is an alum of, to pay reparations to a historically black Baptist school also in Louisville. This will be the third of our three conversations from the Angela Project and about these topics. We had Chris Sanders in episode 79, and then in episode 80, we had Kevin Cosby of Simmons College of Kentucky. So if you missed those two episodes, I really encourage you to go back and check them out as well. But here's my conversation with Joe Phelps. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Brian. Now, I'm not sure exactly how to identify you title-wise. You have served as a pastor for a long time. Chris Sanders, Wednesday at the Angela Project, introduced you now as Prophet at Large. Prophet at Large. So that, I guess, that, I don't know if you have that on your business card or not. So I'll let you introduce yourself. And what are you up to these days? Well, thank you. I, I'm One of my uh, email addresses is just Joe Phelps at Gmail. So in some ways, I'm just Joe Phelps. I, I guess I consider myself a minister at large. I loved my years at Highland Baptist Church, where I served for 21 years and 18 other years as a minister after my seminary years, plus during my seminary years, 42 years of having some kind of title. I don't have a title in a church now, but I still am a minister. We want to talk about some of that ministering and that public yeah. ministry that you're doing, but right. let's, let's set the stage a little bit, because one of the things that you did in your presentation at the Angela Project this year, as we recognize and reflect on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans being brought August 20th this year will be 400 years. You, you spoke and you told a bit of, you grounded in your personal story. Right. And I wonder if you could share a little bit of, of that and, and how that 
journey has impacted your thoughts on sure. some of these racial justice issues today? Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I, I'm aware of is that it's hard for pe white people to recognize that whiteness gives us a certain amount of privilege. So I just looked at my own life because it didn't evidence privilege in any real obvious way as a white person, but in reflection it did. My parents started really with nothing. My dad was a coal miner's son and my mother grew up in an orphanage. So all they had when they got married was a baby on the way. And yet my dad got a job at a steel foundry in Erie, Pennsylvania. And because of that, they ended up with a house. And I was born, and so I was born into a home that they owned, and I just thought that was the American dream. When I looked back at it, my dad got his job in a whites-only factory because he had a brother who was already in. He had a connection. My dad was a white, good-looking guy. The boss liked him. The boss lent him money. That got their house purchased. That house, when they sold it and moved to Joplin, Missouri, they took the profits from that. And they bought a house in Joplin. And we lived in it. And we sold it and took that money with profit and moved to Ohio. And that's been my life. We're part of the white flight, moving from the city to the suburbs. And it wasn't until, really, I went to college at Southwest Baptist College in Bolivar that I was around black people, and they were the, just guys on the basketball team. So I lived a white life. Reflecting on that has been helpful to me, and telling that story has helped other people see, oh, yeah, I guess being white does have some advantages. The way you tell the story matters, and I think we have this... This American dream, you know, American individuality story that we like to tell in the white community, pulling ourselves up by our, a bootstrap, which is not to downplay the importance of hard work, but recognizing that there's another part of the story there. Right. That there is a bootstrap. At least they had a boot yes. that, that they could pull themselves up by. I will say my dad worked very hard. He came home every night covered in dust. And I'm sure it shortened his life. There, you know, that was before OSHA and all of that. So I, I love and honor my father. But I recognize, and I think my father would recognize, that he had a bootstrap. He had a brother. He had a white-only shop that he could apply for a job for. His house was in a white-only neighborhood. All of those things, I think, as we mature, we begin to see more clearly. That's the gospel, you know, that someday we'll see more clearly. Today we see through a glass dimly, but I think as we grow in faith, we, we grow in recognizing that, yeah, our life has been gift, especially us white American Baptists. So let's be honest with that and let the gospel then tell us what to do. I started preaching there. Sorry, that's... So <laughs> you know, old habits die hard, right? <laughs> that's right. So you've been involved the last few years with a group called Empower West. Empower West, yes. So how did this get going, and, and what's this group about? Empower West is a, a four-year-old group of black and white clergy who meet every week and talk about things that matter pertaining to American descendants of slaves. It, I would say we're there. We started out going because we were a bunch of guilty white guys and women from predominantly white congregations who wanted to do something. What do we do? Help. How can we help? Now we're there not to help them, but to get saved. We're, we're there because they are part of our wholeness. This whole learning to recognize privilege, to recognize the ways that our government and our 
even our churches have repressed and oppressed black people through through the, the, the decades and really even up to the present moment. All of that is very enlightening and liberating. It, and it feels just so deeply true and like the center of the gospel to be standing side by side with our black sisters and brothers as they begin to help themselves and the world see that they have a, a call and a demand for reparation, that they've not been treated fairly, that they've not had the, the opportunities that we've had, and that it's time for them to have some reparation for the injustices that, that have happened at the federal levels, at the state levels, but also at the church levels and at the personal level. So that's what we're trying to talk about. And so let's talk about that church level in particular, okay. yeah. or in, yeah. in institutional, because big push in the last couple of months, yeah. uh, and, and you've been a part of this, is involving Southern Baptist Theological Seminary right. there in Louisville, Kentucky, right. where you pastored for what, 22, 22 years. 22 years. And you're a graduate of that institution. I'm a graduate, 1978 graduate of Southern. And Highland Baptist, it just happens after being gone for 18 years, I find myself a mile from Southern Seminary. Only the seminary is now led by Albert Moeller, who is a man that I've gotten to know over the years. We've had kind of regular communications, sometimes adversarial, sometimes friendly, always civil. You know, I like him and I care for him as a human being. So it wasn't unusual when they put out a report that said, here's our history and we lament it but we're not going to change anything except we're just going to try to be better at what we do with black people that empower West said, no, that's that that's not a good model. And we, we, we tried not to be judgmental or even threatening. We just said, you've got to lead. Come on. You've made this public report. Now lead the nation, make a repair make a significant, give a significant portion of your wealth to something outside of your power. It's got to be outside of your power. If you're just giving it to yourself, that doesn't count. Give it to something outside of your power. Give it to a black-led, black-owned, black-conscious institution as an act of repair. I didn't think it was an unreasonable request. We suggested what a, what a significant portion would look like to us, $10 million, but they can, they can set the bar wherever they want. They could have said, you know what, $10 million really doesn't, isn't enough for what we did. It needs to be $20 million. That's what I would have hoped they would have done, but instead they said, no, we don't agree with them theologically, and so we're not partnering with them. Well, and didn't you say we, we don't agree with them theologically, so they, we can't can't partner with this group that doesn't believe in biblical Christianity. That's right. right. You know, these, That's exactly which, right. Which doesn't seem a whole, moved a whole lot theologically from those slave-owning founders who thought that blacks were too dumb to be educated, could be just be property, and now, right. you know, these blacks don't even understand Christianity, so how could we give them money? That's exactly right. And it'd be interesting to know, I'm sure that they would say that was not the intention of what they said, but that's where they they need to... I think I would invite them to not only think about what you said, but think about the spirit and the, the ethos that from which that kind of thinking comes and begin to recognize that you're living in, and it comes out of your theology, you're living in a, a hermeneutic 
that brings violence to people, that enslaved people, that, that, that makes women second-class citizens, that tells the LGBT community that not only can they not be in their choirs or teach their children, but they're actually an abomination to God. My former colleague, Carol Harston, her Demon Project talks about traumatizing theology, and I think that's, that's, what, they're, that's what they're producing. You know, it seems that the, the report that Southern Seminary put out in December is a great first step because they did do some research and report some stuff that hadn't been told. That's right. The problem is that Mulder seems to think it's the last step. And that's what you all are trying to say is that there's more to repentance. Absolutely. That repentance isn't just lament. Repentance is repairing what, what, what's been damaged. And the fact that it was the end of slavery happened, you know, 150 years ago, that's not the point. The point is that the damage was done. The repair needs to be made. It cannot be just an apology, and it cannot be just more scholarships for people to come to your school because your school teaches a slaveholder theology. That doesn't help the black community. It's not an act of repair. It's an act of self-serving, so don't do it anymore, please. Now, I have learned that apparently the report and, and Power West and, and others have been helping uncover this. The report didn't tell the whole story, though. So I guess there's the Nortons, and that aspect has been left out of some of Southern Seminary's oh, story. Well, there's all kinds of angles that can be told to this story. Uh, to me, yeah, you can get go a lot further in how Southern Seminary's money came from slaveholders and, and different sources of slavery. The other part, though, that wasn't told in the in the report was it, it kind of stopped around 1930, 1940. It didn't tell the part about how when the professors who were beginning to understand and awaken to these things began to make changes, that those were the very professors that were fired when Al Mohler became president and everything reverted. So, you know, if they're going to tell the, if they're going to tell their history with the black community, they got to tell the whole history. Now, it's probably easy here at a CBF meeting to criticize Mueller. In your presentation of the Angelo Project, though, you, you then went farther than that. You talked about your own church that you pastored for 22 years and its history and right. being honest and open about that history. That's correct. I wonder if you could share a little bit of that. We learned through the connection with George Washington Norton that his daughter, Juliet Norton Marvin, was the benefactor that began Highland Baptist Church, the church I served. And her money would have come from the slave connection with Mr. Norton. You know, I also realized in retrospect, I, I just, it, it, it's an example of what you, you cannot see, what you're not aware of, I, I suppose. I stood in the pulpit of Highland for 21 years and preached to the beautiful cloud of witnesses, the stained glass windows in the back left, including Richard Furman and James P. Boyce, who were both slaveholders. I never recognized, acknowledged, or knew, you know, although the information was right there, that they were slaveholders. I never saw it. Now I see it. And now I wonder what churches like Highland will do with that. Two blocks up the street from the church is a statue to a man who had been a Confederate officer. He's not dressed as a Confederate officer. It's not there ostensibly because he was it's one of those lost cause statues, and they've decided to take it down. wonder what we'll do with our windows. You know, I, I wouldn't want to see two vacant spots, and yet I, 
I don't know. I don't know. Everyone has to do their own thing. So I think churches are going to have to do their own exploration. I think individuals are going to have to do that as well. I know my family's going to think about the wealth that we've accrued because of our privilege. And are we just going to hand that on to our kids or are we going to do something else with it that, that supports the values that we've tried to preach? The sad truth is that there are many white Baptist churches and white Baptist institutions across the South and Midwest Absolutely. that have stories very similar to, to Southern and to Highland. And to Furman University and Wake Forest. Yeah, I think all, all of those schools will have to do their own soul searching, and I hope they'll do their own reparation as, as they feel led. It's not for me to tell them what they ought to do. God will tell them. God will tell them. If they'll, if they'll just listen. So what's the first step for a church or an institution? How do they begin this process? My transformation happened when I began to meet every week with a black man and listen to the world from his point of view to begin to drive more in and through the black community and let him navigate and, and interpret the terrain. It's interesting, fascinating, heartbreaking to take a tour of West Louisville with Kevin Cosby because he'll tell you what you're seeing. And it's, it is about disinvestment. It's about hopelessness. It's about people becoming zombies because they feel like there's no way they can get out of the hole they're in. When you see that, something awakens in you and you begin to I began to feel the Spirit of God say to me that this, this right here is my calling. This is, this is where my church needs to be. This is where, this is where CBF needs to be, is at the, at, at looking at this issue and trying to address it once, not once and for all, but in our day, to do what we can in our day. I'm proud to say that CBF seems to be doing that, and I'm proud to say that some of our churches more and more are, are beginning to say, yeah, what can we do? Where are we? How can we connect? And that's, that's very good news. And one of the things that you've mentioned that you all have been reading books as well, and, that, uh, and you've had some public, you know, broader discussions. And, and I wonder if you could yeah. list a few of those books oh, that have yeah, been particularly absolutely. important resources. Yeah. The, the first book that Dr. Cosby got us to read was a book called Black Power by Stokely Carmichael, which I thought was going to be some wild radical thing. It's just about black empowerment. Black people having their own churches, their own businesses. And so it's, it's not radical at all. But we've read a book called The Half Has Never Been Told by Edward Baptist, a uh, Cornell historian, wonderful guy. We brought him in and he did a presentation of the book to 800 people that we had invited to read the book. We got the local newspaper, the Courier Journal, to do like a kind of a four-page spread on the book and on this book club. And we, we had 800 people there when the author came to talk about this book because it was a fascinating book about how America's capitalism, how its wealth was built on the backs of slaves. And it's so masterfully written, even though it's, it's 600 pages long people read the book and they, they were, they were changed. They were born again by it. So yeah, that was the beginning of it. We read white rage by Carol Anderson, a smaller book that, that deals with after the civil war, when, when blacks began to make advancements, how whites would react with rage 
and she tells that story again and again from 1865 all the way up through the election of Barack Obama. We read The Color of Law, which talks about redlining and kind of helps those of us who live in cities like Louisville understand why the city is the way it is. And then most recently we read a book called Never Caught, which was the history of the slave of Georgia Martha Washington, a woman named Ona Judge. So each year we've had five, six, eight hundred people show up for these annual book reads and to enjoy hearing from the author and asking questions and meeting together. So it's been, a, I think it's helped open some eyes in Louisville and I hope it does in other cities as well. So what's next for you? Well, I, I, we, we've issued this call to renewal and repentance to Dr. Moeller, and he said no. I think next we're going to invite him to a public conversation to see if he wants to publicly dialogue with us about why, in light of their history, no response of any kind other than what they've given is necessary. We'll see if he uh, is willing to do that. And from there, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we, have, we have not been strategic. We've been, I would say, intuitive or just listening to what feels right, what the Spirit seems to, to be leading us to do next. And I think we'll continue to do that. Thank you so much, Joe, for being on the program, but also for what you've been doing for your voice, uh, your challenge to us through Empower West and the Angela Project, just for all that you're doing. Thank you very much. Great to talk with you, and I, I hope the best for the word and way. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Empower West at empowerwest.com. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you have comments or feedback, send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. You can do that at wordandway.org and hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support this program as well as our website and monthly magazine. Thanks for listening.